and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to introduce myself. I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach where I get to work with elite athletes and executives and organizations and teams on their mindset And I love what I do for a living, so I fired up this podcast to learn, to connect with others, and to connect those people and their wisdom with you, the listener. So excited to have you here with us today for an amazing guest. And if you liked today's conversation, we'd appreciate it if you shared it on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is your social. We'd be really grateful if you shared today's talk. Now to today's guest. Dan Pink is an author. He's a really successful author and writer. He's somebody whose books I've read and have enjoyed following along. He has six provocative books about business and human behavior. His books include the long-running New York Times bestsellers, When, which is a favorite of mine, and A Whole New Mind, as well as the number one New York Times bestsellers, Drive and to Sell as Human. Dan's books have won multiple awards, have been translated into 39 languages, and have sold more than 3 million copies. And like me, Dan lives in the Washington, D.C. area, and I was actually recently at an event where Dan was in the audience learning and growing just like me. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Dan. And without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Dan Pink. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We just chatted for a while about the book industry, the business of books. uh, And it's pretty interesting to hear your perspective and, and what you've learned over the years. And where I'd actually like to start is, when you knew that writing was something that you were passionate about, if you could take us back and, and oh, man. let us know. Yeah. That's a more complicated story than you might realize, Brian, uh, because it took me a while to figure it out. Um, and so uh, I'll try to, this is going to be, I was going to say, I'll try to make a long story short, but I've never done that. So let me make a long story long. That's fine. So, um, so I was born in central Ohio. Um, to middle-class parents who encouraged me from a very early age to go to law school because it was something to quote-unquote fall back on. 
and being a dutiful firstborn son, I followed their guidance. So I did pretty well. I was a very good student in elementary school and high school and whatnot, not because I'm smart, but because I'm savvy enough to understand that the rules were pretty clear and easy to follow. You basically did what the authority figure wanted you to do neatly and on time and everything was gonna be good. So I went to college, I loved college. I actually learned some things in college, um, did well in college. So I get out of college and you know work for a little bit, but of course I'm gonna go to law school. So I go to law school and realize that I hate it um, and that there's no way in hell I'm gonna ever become a lawyer. How, and, how early did you know that you hated it? Was it right away? Well, I, I realized it wasn't so much that I hate. Well, there was, there was some hatred. I, it was pretty quick. It was, it was pretty quick. Um, and, and you know the mistake that I made is that I decided to go to law school having no idea what law school was, having spent not a minute even visiting a law school or a law school class. Uh, having no idea what lawyers actually did for a living. It was a colossal mistake. Was it, mo uh, were mo mom and dad lawyers? Like what, what was nope. it about law school? Just, just decided that that would be a, a good place? I think my mother and father thought I wasn't smart enough for medical school. <laughs> so that was, I don't know. A good um, second option. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, uh, so I graduated from law school. I was really interested in politics. And so I ended up working in politics for a while and became a political speech writer. And, um, but here's the other thing. Through this time, from the time that I was in high school, I was always quote unquote, writing on the side. So in college, even though I was a you know, hardcore social science major, majored in linguistics, which is a very mathematical form of social science, I was entering and amazingly even winning short story contests. Um, when I was, uh, even when I was in law school, I was writing op-eds and magazine articles on the side. Then I, when I worked in politics, I was writing magazine articles, quote unquote, on the side. And, and in many of the jobs that I had, I couldn't even get paid for those things because it would have violated the ethics laws. And, uh, and anyway, around the time, so all this time I was for literally for 10 or let's see, 10 years, 12 years. I was doing a lot of quote unquote writing on the side, not thinking that I wanted to become a writer that I grew up, but she said, this is what I did. And finally, and now we're fast forwarding, I guess I'm in my early thirties, 30, something like that. Um, my wife says to me, hey, this thing that you're doing on the side, I think you kind of like it since you're doing it late at night in the midst of doing other demanding jobs and you're doing it for free. This might be something that you actually enjoy. This might be who you are. And so, um, I, I still wasn't sure, and I, uh, but I was sure enough that I quit my job. She kept her job, her health insurance, our health insurance, and I started to see if I could make a living as a writer, and that was it. So it wasn't like some kind of epiphany where I said, oh, ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, I always read a lot, and, and I did some writing, uh, but I never really thought of it as a, my vocation um, until like this slow hunch finally emerged in my late twenties and early thirties. You said you like to read a lot and write a lot as a kid. What were some, well, I like to read a lot. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't write that much as a kid, but I would, you know, but what, like what, like when, when like there were writing assignments in school, it's like, okay, this is pretty cool. I can do this pretty well. Sure. What else did you enjoy as a kid? What were you into? What were some hobbies? Oh, I was totally into sports. Like many kids. I mean, I grew up in, I grew up in the Midwest. Um, so uh, I, I would say I was interested in from the, from zero to 16, I was interested in sports more than anything else. So both playing sports and following sports and anything sports related. So there was a baseball 
dice game called Strat, still is called Stratomatic Baseball. I was way into that, which is a, um, I was, um, I was actually in high school, I was really, I would run football pools um, in the NFL and college. So I grew up in a college place. I grew up in uh, uh, Columbus, Ohio, the home of the Ohio State University. Um, I was actually really into uh, sports betting. Uh, I was in high school too. So uh, anything related to sports, I was way into. And why politics? Why did you decide that you wanted to? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I was sort of, I was really interested in that even from the time I was pretty young. It's a good question. I'm not sure what got me interested in it, but I always remember even as a little kid, like following the elections and following what was going on and being interested in politics and public policy and that kind of stuff. And taking the leap to go off on your own, some people would hear that and be like, wow, that's really risky or you're, but you're not, you're shaking your head. Why was that not that big of a risk for you at that time? It was calculated risk. I don't believe like, like I think that people, you know, I, I'm, you, you have to be smart. You have to be strategic in your risk taking. And so here's the thing. Um, I let, when I left my job, uh, here's, here's what I, here's what I did. I left my, I left my job. But as I said before, my wife didn't leave her job. My wife was a lawyer at the justice department. She didn't leave her job. So we still had an income coming in. Uh, she didn't, we had health insurance through her. And so, um, and we always had lived below our means. And so we didn't, we've never lived a lavish lifestyle at all. And so we were pretty frugal and we had an income coming in. We had health insurance. And so I figured the plan was let's try this for like two years and see if it works. If it doesn't work, I'll just go back and get a real job. Um, and so, so that was, so that was it. So it's not like, oh my God, let's both of us quit our jobs and, just go off into the wild abandon there. Not at all. It's very calculated, very calculated risk. I have, uh, you're, we're, we are ta I'm talking to you from the office behind my house in Washington, DC. Uh, I, I work out of a refurbished garage behind my house in Northwest Washington, DC, uh, not too far from the mean streets of Bethesda, Maryland, where you live. And I, um, I have never, I have never, um, had an office outside of my house um, because I'm cheap and I've always believed in low overhead. And so my business for 20 years has had absurdly high margins uh, because I don't like having expenses. So, um, so it's a, uh, you have to understand like, you know, what's the, you, you have to take some risks and have to follow what you're really interested in. Uh, but you also have to be smart and pragmatic about it. Just a quick story from my end. When I finished grad school and I wanted to start my own practice, I was like, I got to go get an office. And I found this townhouse in downtown Bethesda that had a room available and it was a bunch of psychologists in the office. And I had lunch with my dad one day and I said, yeah, I found this great office. It's $1,000 a month. It's not that expensive. And my dad turns to me and goes, Brian, how many clients do you have right now? I go, one? He goes, how much you charge that client? 150 an hour? How many times do you see them? Four times a month? How are you going to pay your first month's rent? And I, I, I got it real quick. And he, his advice to me at that point, and he actually went to law school as well and became a writer and a journalist um, as well. And, you know, it stuck with me then that, hey, you know, just do what you can to earn as much as you can. Um, and then when it's the right time, you can go explore where you want to invest your money.
Uh, and that was one of the best pieces of advice I got when I started and I did not get it in grad school. It, it's really interesting. Yeah. I had to go back home to, to get that advice. Yeah, no, I think that people have actually, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I have to say that's one of the pieces of advice that I give to people who want to go out on their own is, is, uh, is low over, is low overhead. Um, especially, especially in a, in a quote unquote business, in a, in a business like mine, but I see people getting offices and printing up fancy business cards and doing all this kind of stuff. And mm -mm -mm. You mentioned working from home and we're recording this uh, remotely because we're not actually allowed to be in contact with each other right now because the coronavirus. So a lot of people are at home right now. And when this goes live, hopefully they won't be anymore, but there's a strong possibility that they will be. What advice do you have for people to be productive, even if there are distractions around them in, in different ways? Um, I, I think to rely less on willpower and much more on systems and structure. So by that, here's what I mean. So uh, uh, I like having, you, you have to have, if you're gonna work at home, you have to have some separation between the work part and the, and the home part. You just can't go plop in the middle of your house with everything, everything else going around. You need a door, you need something. Um, I have a separate structure, a one car garage. That's, that's really, really nice. Uh, in the past, I had a third floor that had a, that had a door on it. So I think you wanna have some, you wanna have some kind of separation. Uh, be, and then you want to set up systems and structures that allow you to do it. So I'll give you an example. I, uh, so uh, I, this is where I do my writing. And on writing days, uh, I come into my office maybe 8.30 or 9. And I give myself a quota of words that I have to write that day. Um, and what, is that, what, is, what is the quota? It depends. It varies from day to day. Uh, it depends on where I am in a project or something like that. Not, not much because I'm a very slow writer. So sometimes it's like 500. 700 something like that but, but you'll not, not, you'll set it dan depending on where you think what how do you set it as far as that quote? it depends on what i'm working on so let's say that i'm working on a chapter and i need to knock out like a big section and that section is let's say that section is um i, I imagine that section is going to be like 1600 words maybe what i'll do is i'll do 800 um but let's say maybe that I, maybe maybe i'm coming to the end of a chapter and I only need 500 words to take it home. I'll do 500 words that day. So it sort of depends on where I am, but somewhere, somewhere, somewhere between like 500 and 1,000, which is not a lot. There are a lot of people who write a lot more than that. I, I, I don't. Um, and then, but, but the most important thing, back to your distraction question, is this. So on that, so what I will do is I will not do anything except that until I hit my number. So I won't talk on the phone. I won't check email. I won't do. I won't do anything like that until I hit my number. And a way to enforce that is, first of all, it, it's harder to do it first, but to get better, it's simply not open my email program. Um, and then also not bring my phone with me, not bring my phone into the office, leave my phone inside. So I can't hear the buzz or the clinks of the text messages or whatever. Um, and just a stat, so again, well, like I think a lot of times we try to, this is a, a fairly commonplace notion by now, but a lot of times we try to will ourselves into discipline and focus when in fact the better thing is to change the environment so the distractions don't enter in the first place and then you're getting into that deep work that cal newport talks right about. exactly it's very cal newportian and then what else are you doing as far as habits and routines to make sure that you're being productive with your day um well, well I, I do a bunch of different things um you know not every single day and and sometimes i sometimes i breach them but uh, i try to do um this is a practice. I don't remember even where I got this from. I didn't originate it, but uh, is I, I figure out what my MIT is, my most important task, and try to do that first. 
Um, and in most cases, it's writing. So even though there'll be other things to do, it's sometimes appealing to do um, things that are seemingly productive, but less, less important. Um, before you do the things that are harder and most and harder and most important. Um, and I just waving to somebody my wife was walking through our back. I don't know why she's coming through the backyard, but um, it's weird. Um, wives, wives are allowed to be within distance right now. I don't think yeah. distance works for people. Oh, no, I'm not, it's not a social distancing thing. It's like, <laughs> I've never seen it. So, 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 I don't know. My wife was hanging out in the alley behind our house for reasons I can't understand. Um, so, um, um, what was I talking about? Habits and and deep work and um, making sure you're doing the MIT. Okay, yeah. Let me start. Let me start the whole answer again uh, to avoid the distraction. So one thing that I do, not every day, but many days, is is what I call the MIT, which just stands for most important task. So I do that. I, I actually write that down on a piece of paper. MIT colon whatever that is. In most cases, it's writing. Otherwise, sometimes there are other kinds of things I have to get done. I and I try to make sure that I do that first. There are things that are that are lower in the pecking order that sometimes are more appealing to do. And so you get that great feeling of crossing things off, even though you're crossing things off that don't really matter that much. Um, but so so I try to so I so I try to do that. Um, I, I've gotten a lot better at taking breaks. I think that's really important. And um, and I, I that th those are those are those are really the main those are those are really the main things clearing out that time. We can use Cal Newport's term, clearing out the time for deep work um, and making sure that it's inviolable um, and then just getting a sense of priority. And, um, and, and another thing that I've been trying to do is, is, is like when I list the things to do that day is, is actually try to limit it to three things. Uh, I don't always do that, but what I sometimes will do is I'll do like above the line and below the line. So I'll put the, here are the three things that I have to do and then anything below the line is gravy. That's cool. And your books stand out, I think, because of the research and how much you pour into learning the nuances and the science behind the topic that you're discussing. Do you enjoy the research more or the writing more? Research. And what does it look like as far as your process for research? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's laborious. I like interviewing people more than anything else. Um, so that's that because that's that's interesting. That's fun. The the research uh, it depends it, de it depends on what kind of stuff that it depends on what kind of stuff that I'm doing. So let's take the latest book when that required an enormous amount of academic research and so so much that I had to bring in a one and a half research assistants to help me sort through things. And so what it would be like so in that case let me let me let me give you an example. So let's say that I knew I had to write about um, let's take a small issue like naps, okay. So what I would do on, on that one would be maybe ask one of the, ask this guy who was an awesome research assistant, uh, hey, uh, can you go do a literature review and find what are the 20 most important papers about naps? And he would then uh, give me a list of those and then the papers themselves. And I would look through and say, okay, I really need to read 10 of these. And I would read, and then, and then that's what I would do. I would read those 10 papers. And then that's where things get going. So I read those 10 papers and in reading those 10 papers, I realized, oh, wow, there are these four other articles that are always cited here. I got to get those and read those too. Meantime, hey, this is a great factoid. I need to put that in somewhere in the book. Wait a second. I have these three questions as a result. And that's, and that's how it goes. So it's very, it's very laborious. It's you, very laborious and slow. 
but you enjoy going into the weeds on on the details and the the science and I do because you learn a lot. You know, it's like wow, that's kind of cool. I never realized that. You know, and so you just you're learning a lot about you're you're learning an intense way about a particular subject. Um, you know, it's and it's the kind of thing. It's like you know, if I had become an academic, I would have spent you know it'd be the kind of thing that I spent all my time thinking about this one narrow issue, but here and what I do, it's like, wow, I can spend a few days reading about napping. That's kind of interesting. Why do we nap? How does, you know, how to, you know, and, and just get the, 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 the core ideas out of it rather than spend 30 years trying to make breakthroughs in the area and then move on to something else. So I, I do like that. And the nature of your work also leads to speaking opportunities. So I'm curious what your mindset is when you're on stage and you're speaking and how it's similar, how it's different from writing and when you're creating, uh, um, it's, it's, it's a little, it's a little different. Um, you know, cause I mean, writing is much more writing. It, here's the thing for, for me, writing is at the core of everything that I do. So without writing, if you think about it, like a circle with a, with a, a, a small, a circle within it, the circle within is writing. If I don't have any, if I don't do writing, nothing else happens zero zilch i got nothing else um and so the speaking stuff is uh is an outgrowth of that and it's it's somewhat different in that the process of writing is 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 very difficult and takes a huge amount of time by the time you're able to talk about it in public there, there's a stage where you're testing out you know you're well, i'm always testing out things but you, the ideas are much more fully formed than in the writing process so I wouldn't, I would, you know, typically almost never go out and talk about anything in public uh, while I'm writing, while I'm writing it, because I'm writing, because I'm figuring out. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll take a small concept and throw it out. But, but in general, the, uh, you're, you're, you're out talking about stuff when it's more fully formed. And then on the flip side of that, we were just at an event in Washington, D.C., and we heard Ryan Holiday speak. And I looked over, you were sitting far away from me. I was down close to the stage and I think you were up um, a little bit ways. But as I looked over, I noticed, I think you were taking copious notes during Ryan's talk. You said earlier, you love to interview people and, and gather information that way, yeah. whether it's interviewing people or listening to a talk or listening to a podcast or a TED talk or whatever, whatever you may be doing how do you find that you acquire information? What works for you to, to learn and grow and acquire information? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And it's a good question for people to ask themselves, I think. I, mean, I don't know if like in your coaching clients and whatnot, whether that's, that becomes a thing. I, I think that's actually really important. For, for me, um, I'm pretty, um, I'm, I'm fairly omnichannel in that I like, the, I like, the, I like them both. So, so, I, so I will, um, so I like going to things like that thing that, that, that um, we went to um, that where Ryan Holiday was talking because I hadn't um, heard any of his stuff and I'd never met him before and it was a pretty interesting talk. And I had my little notebook and took some notes and came back and said, okay, I learned something from this, you know, one or two things uh, from, from that. So I like doing that. Um, but I also like reading um, and I also like uh, talking to people. So so, so it could be from like, like live, listen, live events, audio, video, written stuff. Um, I, I try to get it, I, I try to get it all in. And, and I think there's something to be said for a diversity of media along with a diversity of topics. That's awesome. And your ideas as far as books, how many ideas do you have right now for future books? 
How many total ideas? Oh, I, I don't know. Probably 70. Do you write them? Um, do you write like titles down or how do you yeah, organize them? Yeah. 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 So I have a, I have a file of ideas. Now here's the thing though, Brian, like I'll go back and look at these ideas for books and like, I will immediately, you know, if it's on a piece of paper, many times I'll burn the piece of paper, bring in some Israeli cyber technicians to scrub my hard drive to see that it was to ensure that it, no one ever knew that I said it. So most of the ideas are terrible, but again, this is not anything that novel either, but my view is in order to have good ideas, you have to have a lot of ideas. You know, one of my, I'm going to have a lot, I have a lot of, I have a lot of lists. I have a lot of lists and things like that. I have a lot of lists um, where I'll, I'll write down literally ideas for books. Uh, I have another list that I keep. That's just a spark file where I'll just like a thought will occur to me here. I'll give you a real time notion here. Let me pull this up. Um, you know, where just like things that I'm, things that I am thinking about um, and maybe have a question about, and I have no idea. It's like, it's certainly not a book. It's probably not an article. I don't even know what it is, but it's something that intrigued me enough to just make a running list of it. So I have this running list. Um, let me see what I have here. Um, um, okay, it's really an idea for a podcast. Um, uh, okay, so okay, so here's something. Uh, so here's something that I wrote down from a talk that I heard, uh, which was um, okay. Here we go. So I'll, I'll give you two things from this. This is bizarre. So so one of them was I heard this talk where the guy was saying he said this phrase. He says always start linear. So when you're analyzing data, uh, do simple regressions before bringing the big analytic gun. So what you have is you have you get this massive data or whatever. And you start doing tr all the complicated stuff, but what you should do is actually try the simple stuff first. And I, I think that's not only true for data, it's true for other things. So that's just like, hey, that's interesting. I think there's something to that. I have another thing here, it's totally bizarre. Jigsaw aficionados, that's what it says. Because I had a conversation with somebody who was telling me about how there's this whole universe of people who are obsessed with jigsaw puzzles. I personally don't see the, see the appeal of jigsaw puzzles. I literally have never done one. I find it like, like if I were like in a white collar prison, I'd probably, that's would probably how they punish me doing jigsaw puzzles. But apparently there's a whole universe out there of people who are obsessed with jigsaw puzzles. And that's kind of interesting. I, I don't, I have no idea what that's going to mean, but I just plopped it into the spark file and said, maybe there's something to do. Maybe there's something to do with it. So I'm an idea guy. I've always been an idea guy and my friends crush me because I come up with these ideas and they always shoot them down. People are really good at shooting ideas down, by the way, which is fine. But one of my ideas is to sell a book of Brian's ideas and what an idea that that's the book. What an idea. Um, but I, I bring it up because I'm curious for you. Have you ever taken an idea and thought about, wow, that would make a, a good business? And have you ever pursued a business out, like outside of one of those sparks or one of those ideas and went that route? Or do you feel like, hey, I'm going to stay in my lane and I write and that's where I earn my living and that's, I need to do that really well. And you stay focused on that. Yeah, it's, it's more, it's more that, la it's more that, it's more that, um, it's more that, that ladder. Here's the thing. It's like, one of the things that I think you have to realize in life is like, what are you good at? What is one good at? And for most of us, certainly for me, the number, the universe of things that I'm good at is exceedingly, exceedingly small. And so running stuff is not in that universe for me. 
um, I'm better at other kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, so I, I realize yeah, I'm, I'm, what I'm, what I'm better off doing is what I'm better off doing is just focusing on the stuff that I'm reasonably good at and declaring victory. And other than being good at it and continuing to do that well, your book Drive was the first book that I read of yours and I loved it. And it, it really gets into intrinsic motivation and talks about why that's so important. What's driving you? Why, why do you continue to read and write and talk and, and, and do what you do on a regular basis? You know, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I like it, I think. I mean, uh, you know, people have different, people have different tastes too. And I actually just, I like finding out stuff. And that's one reason I, I think ultimately became a writer. So I just like finding out stuff. And it's a great, it's a great racket if you can do it. You know, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go find out stuff. I'm going to write it down. They're going to put my name on it. And they're going to pay me for it. That's a pretty good deal. And, and so that, that's, that's really what it is. So I, um, I, like, I like consuming, um, you know, ideas and stories and facts and all that sort of stuff. It just gives me inherent it gives me inherent pleasure in, in a way that it might not for in a way that it might not for other people. So. And we talked about before we fired up the mics and recorded uh, you have kids who are at an age now where they're trying to figure out what they want to do for a living for people that are that age that are in college or in high school or just graduated from college. What advice do you give to them if they say, I want to be you when I grow up? I want to be a writer. Yeah, you're, you're shaking your head. You don't want to be me when you grow up. You want to be you when you grow up. Um, you definitely don't want to be me. It's not a good gig, let me just tell you. Uh, the, uh, you know, I think uh, it's um, the most, uh, some of it is to, is to uh, the, the most important thing I think I realized in my own life was that, I used to care what other people thought of me and it took me a while, probably into my twenties, even late twenties to make the discovery and I, to learn what people thought of me. And I discovered what people thought of me. And what I discovered is that they're not thinking about me. They're thinking about themselves. And so the idea that you should run your life based on what other people are going to think of you is absurd. And so once you let go of that, I think they liberate you to try stuff and to do stuff. And so I think if you, if you try stuff, if you use your strengths, if you try to be generous and make a contribution to the world, you're going to be all right. Um, and also I, I see a lot of young people today, understandably, you know, in, in these kinds of anxious times, wanting to plot things out step by step by step by step by step by step and life doesn't work that way. So do, do less long-term planning, more thinking about what are you good at? What do you love to do? Can you get paid for it and can it contribute to the world? How important is legacy for you? That's an interesting question. I mean, I have to say, I haven't, I haven't thought about it much explicitly, honestly. Um, maybe I'm shallow or, or still too young to, th start to think about that. It's something I go back and forth on because I think it's the old adage that three generations from now, nobody really knows who their great, great grandma or grandpa or, or what, point. They, what they point. did. Yet, if we think about purpose and do we want to leave a legacy or even the one sentence example that you talked about with Kennedy yeah. in the book Drive, yeah. you know, it can be a motivating factor or man search for meaning and finding purpose. And yeah. um, 
and so it's something I think about a lot is how much do I care about legacy and how important is it for me to care about, about legacy? Um, so I don't, yeah, but I, I think it's interesting. I, I don't, I want, I don't want to, I don't want to pass by too blithely because it is something that I've thought about in, in a different sense, not with that word, but with that concept. So one thing that I do think about, and I think maybe one thing that driving me to become a writer is the fact that, you know, I write these books and that they theoretically will be around for a long time in some form. And so I do have these thoughts of my great, great, great granddaughter or something like that going to the Library of Congress, which houses, you know, keeps copies of all the books and just stumbling onto this, some book that I wrote and saying, hey, Pink, wait a second. Wait, huh? I wonder if this guy's related to me. And then going on to her, whatever, her, google brain implant and 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 saying wait a second that guy was my great 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 grandfather that's kind of cool so i i think about that uh but i don't yeah i think about it in the concrete sense i just it's a, it's just the construal level here for me is that the is that the is much more concrete than that. i think about those kinds of things rather than like what is my legacy in, a, in a, with a capital l and with that in mind i you mentioned you know taking this step to becoming a writer and you've you know, published a bunch of books. Uh, so your words are now out there. And you also talked about caring less and less about what people think of you. Yeah. I know for me in going through a process and writing a book, the, there is a fear there of writing something that I know when I look back on five years from now, three years from now, 10 years from now, I'm going to say something in that book that Brian in the future disagrees with. If I don't, then I probably haven't grown and progressed as a human being. But how do you handle that when you go back and read? And I was actually reading to sell as human uh, to prepare for this podcast because I just hadn't read it. And you actually like have gone back and it's amazing how much is relevant then now, even though the names of the companies change and the world yeah, changes. Yeah, yeah. But I'm sure you go into some of your past books and either cringe or disagree or, or want to, you, you want to do what you did earlier, which is just, you know, shred it and, and get rid of it. But how do you handle that internally? How do you handle the feelings of, not, I don't want to say embarrassment, but it's, there's some embarrassment. Yeah. How do you handle that? You know, that's a great question. I'm not sure I do handle it. Um, <laughs> I think my strategy has been like, I, I, I mean, one of my strategies has been to avoid it. Uh, and so I hate going back and reading stuff that I've written in the past. I can't stand it. It makes me cringe. Cringe is the perfect word. I just I like, Oh my God, what were you thinking? That's so stupid. Oh, you know, I just, I wince in, in, um, in reading it. It's like, it's like watching, you know, sometimes it's like, it's like watching, um, um, I'm not a, I'm not a boxing fan at all, but every, and one reason is is that like I'll see like a boxing clip on TV and it, and I'll see somebody hitting someone and it's like it's so violent it's like I I turn my I turn away I don't want to see it and I have that same kind of reaction like oh my god no 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 I don't want to read anymore here so uh so um, I, I don't know I think you just take it as a fact of life and 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 in my in my well adjusted moments we'll say oh okay. I don't do that anymore or, Oh, okay. Whew, that's a mistake. I got to watch it next time. When you first left your job and, and went off on this journey, what advice would you give to that person now um, knowing what you know? So if you could go back and give huh. person advice, what, what advice would you give to them at that moment? You sit there, you're upstairs on the third floor and you're, you're getting yeah. started. 
what what would you tell that person? Yeah, that's another great question, Brian. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think that um, that person who was say 30, let's say, that person might have listened a little bit. If you, if I had gone back into advise my 18 year old self, that person would not have listened. But I think my 30 year old self might have listened. Um, and I think that what I would tell that person is. Um, I'm not sure, but I think maybe don't waver from playing the long game. Um, I think there, there are moments when you set out to play the long game and you're like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, you know, is this going to work? Or, hey, there's a shortcut here. Uh, like, steal yourself. Don't waver from long. I think, I think I've done a pretty good job of it over the last 20 years, but, but don't, waver from, don't waver from playing the long game. And you read a lot. There's a million books behind your your shoulders, and uh, you talk about reading all the time. Who are some authors and some books that have impacted oh, you or, or that you love? So many. I mean, just too 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 many to too too many to name. I mean, I I think that there are. I mean, the way I look at it, and even the way I, I want people to use my books and so forth, is this: like, if if someone says, "Hey, I read your book, and and, and you know, and I, I'm going to base my entire life off of it now." Like I, I would, I would like leap onto them and say, no, 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 don't do that. Which, so, so the way I look at it is, is that you read a lot of stuff, you absorb a lot of stuff and you take pieces that are relevant for you and fashion it into your own way of your own way of doing things. But there, I, I, I mean, there's, there are too many, I mean, I have, there's so many, I mean, I just read, I, I'm lucky in that um, I, I often get, you know, galleys, early versions of books. Um, there's a great book I read uh, called uh, Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman that's coming out later this year about how, you know, our premise about human beings is completely off. We tend to think that people are inherently selfish and vicious and cruel when in fact, actually, most people are not. And so many of our policies and things are geared toward that notion of humanity, mean, cruel, brutish, when in fact, most people are actually pretty decent. Um, so there's that. Uh, Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, has a great book coming out about loneliness, uh, which I think is going to be especially relevant in our days of quarantining. Um, uh, 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 Jeff Salingno has a, has a new book out about the college admissions process that's kind of a fly on the wall look at how college admissions officials make their decisions. Um, and just so, you know, so much. Um, I just read a great novel about baseball. Uh, called the Cactus League uh, by Emily Nemens. It's just a, one of the better, one of the best novels I've read in a long time. So there's just, there's, here's the thing, like there are a lot of books out there and unfortunately a lot of them are really bad, but there's also a, a decent number that are really, really good, like too many to, too many to read. So I know your your time is precious, and I just am curious to get your thoughts on what's going on right now in our world, and uh, with with being quarantined, and uh, we we hit on a little bit before we started recording. But what are you noticing? What are you observing? What's popping for you as you sort of witness everything that's going on? Well, you said something interesting when we were talking before the inter the interview itself, Brian, about how your view of this of people being in this, uh, whatever we're calling it now, the shelter in place-ish kind of thing of social distancing is that, is, is how well people are behaving, that the people are being kind and generous. And uh, that goes to the, the, the Rutger Bregman thesis there too. So I, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing plenty of that. I, I don't think that we know. 
I, I don't think that we know. I, um, uh, I, I worry that the, the conditions are brewing for some pretty serious widespread mental health problems, honestly. Um, in that what you have is you have people who are, some people have anxiety about what's going on out in the world and the anxiety about catching the virus or whatever. You have uh, social distancing and we know that human beings are social creatures who wanna connect with other people. And, um, and then also this, you know, people have the bottom falling out economically, that's very tough. So that's, that, that's I, I think that's what I'm most, I'm most worried about. I'm most worried about that, what it does to the mass American, mass American psyche. But here's the thing, it's like, I, I know I remember 9-11, I remember the, obviously remember the, the great recession. Uh, we tend to get through it. We, we, this is, this is tough, but we tend to get through it. Awesome. And first of all, once again, thank you for your work. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks for your time. Uh, especially thank you for chatting with me about the business of books, which sure. uh, could have been its own podcast in itself. But yeah. if people want to find out about your latest books, where they can get your books, uh, let them know where they can do that. And also I mentioned to you before we started that I really enjoy following you on Twitter as well. So social yeah, media, website, books, all that good stuff. Well, come to uh, www.danpink.com. Uh, that has a bunch of stuff on the books, some other resources. I have an email newsletter and uh, has links to the social media stuff. Um, I, I've gone a little lighter on social media lately uh, just because it's, um, especially uh, some of it, some of it's pretty, some of it's pretty toxic. So I've, I've been spending less, I've been spending less time on that. Uh, and I've been spending more time as a, as a reader on email newsletters. Cause I think that they're, they're that's a lot of those are really, 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 really good things like next draft, things like uh, 1440, um, quartz has a daily newsletter. It's, some of those are really, really good in staying on top of things. Yeah. I love quartz is it's something yeah. like Every morning is helpful for me, but yeah. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Dan, thank you so much. Really appreciate it and stay well, stay healthy and uh, look forward Same to, to you, Brian. Chatting with you. Good talking with you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Is I, I figure out what my MIT is, my most important task, and try to do that first. Um, and in most cases it's writing. So even though there'll be other things to do, it's sometimes appealing to do, um, things that are seemingly productive, but less, less important, um, before you do the things that are harder and most, and harder and most important.